when it comes to a passage like what we're going to study today, it's hard to understand for some why doctrinal error is such a big deal unless you cherish that old rugged cross. I hope that's true of you, that you cherish it, and that those aren't just words that, that you sing. I know it's an old hymn, and so maybe some of you younger ones are like, that's not my style. That's all right. I hope that's your heart. Well, I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, as we return to our study of this short epistle this morning, and we're going to look more pointedly at the reason it is imperative for churches to have qualified elders. We've been talking about elders last uh, several times. We've looked at this section, and uh, today will be really the final time where that is the, the main theme. Once you're there at Titus, you can follow along as I read the whole chapter for context. Paul begins his letter, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe or are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict." For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deed." I want you to imagine for a moment that you come week after week to this room and you experience something completely different than what you experience here. Imagine that the church that you're sitting in has no elders, no deacons, 
no governing documents. This church has no statement of faith to which its members adhere, except perhaps that Christ is Lord. Imagine that maybe on this side of the room there are those who believe that God's not done speaking through His prophets, and He often speaks through people who speak languages that no one else can understand, and so week after week they're kind of putting forth people to come up front and say things that they believe came directly from the Lord, and others are speaking things that no one else can understand. Maybe imagine that on this side of the room there are those who believe that the church should be focused on social issues, and so every week they come trying to get everyone else to come on board with their causes for the sake of ministering to the poor and the destitute and even affirming lifestyles that have historically been considered sinful. Maybe imagine that in this area there's a group of people who come week after week trying to get everyone to obey the Mosaic law, especially the dietary laws and following the Sabbath and keeping the annual feasts and rituals. Maybe over here there are those who believe the Lord's coming is so imminent that we should all quit our jobs and not get married and be single-mindedly focused on Christ. Perhaps there are those in the back who are so committed to stemming the, the tide and the decline of culture that they come week after week with picket signs that they leave in the back, and then after the service, they take up those signs to find somewhere to go protest something. Intermixed with all of these groups, there are those who believe that babies born to believers should be baptized, and there are others who believe that only those who have a validated profession of faith should be baptized. There are those in various seats who maybe believe that God has a specific designed role for men and women in the home and in the church. And there are others who believe that the gospel, the cross of Christ, eliminates all of those distinctions in roles based on gender. Interspersed throughout the church, there are those who believe that we should bow down and submit to every jot and tittle of mandates from the government and even their recommendations to boot. And there are others who say that we should resist every encroachment by the government on how we live, work, and worship. Planted in various seats are those who believe that God blesses those with enough faith with health and material prosperity. And there are others in other seats who believe that the poor are more godly because they're more like Jesus. There are those who come every week thinking and trying to get others to believe that the gospel mandates that we take care of our environment. And there are those who make social justice a gospel mandate. Imagine all of these views and all of these attitudes and all of these efforts coming together under one roof week after week after week to worship God with such diversity and with no leadership, with no central standards of what we believe and who we are and and how we should live, you can probably imagine the kinds of problems that would exist in this church. There would no doubt be factions and divisions. There would be a lot of judging going around, a lot of suspicions of other people's salvation. There would be favoritism of teachers and Differences of opinion of who should be supported by the church and who shouldn't. 
Every time someone got up to speak, a large portion of the congregation would be suspicious. What is he or she going to say? Maybe there would be arguments in the car on the way home, around the lunch table about what was said. Families would get divided as different members of each family begin to lean toward one direction or another, moving in different directions. Some might even begin to give up on Christianity, thinking, well, if everybody disagrees, how am I supposed to know what is right? Maybe this isn't, maybe, maybe none of this is true. Every time we get together, the church would be full of tension in the air. Now, some of these differences, you can stop imagining, some of these differences are easier to imagine coexisting, and they probably do right now. But others are more difficult, and it's hard to imagine all of these differences and all of these viewpoints coexisting without the church falling apart quickly. The differences and viewpoints and lifestyles are different, but this is precisely the kind of situation that the churches in Crete found themselves in. You see, unlike today, back then there were no denominations. Uh, There weren't multiple churches in the city where you could go and, and decide where you wanted to worship based on your personal beliefs and your preferences and your perceived needs. Every city had one and only one church. There was only one place and one group of people that would gather together under the banner of Jesus Christ. Many had knowledge of the Old Testament, but no one had their own Bible. There was a mix of Jews and Gentiles to be sure. Some had professed faith in Christ recently and others had been believers for several decades. In fact, We haven't mentioned this before as we've studied Titus, but on the island of Crete, there were some Christians who were among the very first Christians in the world. History tells us that the island of Crete had a pretty large population of Jews, and those Jews would go to Jerusalem every year for Passover, and they would stay for nearly a couple months until Pentecost, at which point they would return home. Well, when Jesus was resurrected and ascended to the Father a few days before Pentecost. There were those believers, 120 of them, that were gathered in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. Well, he came on the day of Pentecost, filled those believers, and they began to proclaim the great works of God in many different languages that they had never learned. And so, at that time, there were Jews from all over the world, the the known world at that time, and so they heard people speaking in their own languages. And Acts 2.11 tells us that among those Jews were Cretans. And those Cretan Jews who believed, like many of the other Jews who believed, stayed in Jerusalem for a lengthy period of time, many months, maybe even years. They recognized that this is a whole new way of thinking. This is a whole new life. I can't go home. I need to be where I, need to, where I can learn, where I can hear the Word of God from the apostles. And so they would learn and and grow and mature in their faith during that time. But then when persecution came upon the death of Stephen and the death of James, the believers scattered and many went to their own homes. And so Christians then ended up back in Crete. And so there on the island of Crete, there were believers who had been in Christ for 20 to 30 years. And there were those who were baby Christians There were believers who were taught by multiple apostles in Jerusalem, and there were those who had only had exposure to Paul and Titus 
And they were limited in, in the amount of teaching they had heard. Add to those differences the character of the people. As we've seen, the island of Crete is not known for its southern hospitality and its safe neighborhoods and its trustworthy businessmen. They were a particularly brutish people, as Paul indicates in verses 12 and 13. And so when some of them got saved, believed in Christ, and came into the church, some of that old character walked right in with them. Naturally, there was a wide spectrum of understanding and in maturity and in theology of those who professed to be believers in Christ. And rather than everyone being humble and recognizing they were needing to be taught and and being gracious toward one another, there were many who believed they knew everything they needed to know and they were going to teach you what you needed to know. They were spreading their own versions of Christianity. That's the state of the church on the island of Crete in which Paul entrusted Titus with a task of appointing elders, men who know the truth, who can teach the truth, and who can defend against error. There was a desperate need of authoritative leadership, who, men who could bring clarity to what is Christianity and what is not Christianity, what is a godly way to live and what is an ungodly way to live. They needed to explain what are the differences that require humility and grace and tolerance among believers. A passage like this, verses 10 to 16, might seem unimportant to us today, or at the very least of less importance. After all, we're not in that kind of a situation. Uh, We're now 2,000 years down the line of history, and believers have all narrowed themselves down into churches where there's more or less... Uh, significant agreement on things. But a text like this is critical for us because it it reminds us of the ever-present danger of false teaching, of doctrinal error. We are in a constant war over the truth. I don't know if you ever think in those terms, but that is exactly what we're in. And this war began when the serpent said to Eve in the garden, questioning God's word, did God really say? And then he challenged God's word by saying, you surely will not die. And ever since, the serpent of old and his followers have been working to stamp out the truth of God. And now, you and I live at a time, as wonderful as it is in so many ways, where False teaching is universally accessible on the internet, through media, books, and all kinds of ways. And so make no mistake, though we may not be exposed to false teaching week after week as we come to church with believers of all stripes, the reality is the influence of false teaching is among us. It's in some of the books that we read. It's in some of the people that we listen to when we're not here. It's in the, on the radio and on television. And so we need a text like this to keep us alert to what is out there and how to respond. Now, as you look at verses 10 to 16 here, the, the text does not really follow a clear logical progression 
that makes it easy to outline and walk through verse by verse. If anything, Paul really introduces the main ideas in verses 10 and 11, and then from 12 to, 4, uh, 12 to 16, he, he goes back and forth just discussing this situation and how to respond to it. So instead of going verse by verse, we're going to, as our outline, have four questions that we're going to ask and answer, uh, and that will help us mine out of this passage what the Holy Spirit is communicating to us. All right, so question number one. Question number one, what is the true character of those who teach error? What is the true character of those who teach error? One of the dynamics that makes false teaching so believable is that false teachers are often attractive. They're good speakers, they're passionate preachers, they're funny, they're successful, they're personally likable. You see these men and women on TV and you hear them casually in in interviews that they do and they just seem like nice people. There's nothing particularly distasteful about them except maybe they're a little bit too nice because they don't want to offend anybody. But what Paul does in this passage is, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he directs or he, he describes the character of those who teach doctrinal error. His descriptions are not personal attacks, but they are revealing what is actually going on in the heart of those who teach truth or teach ideas that go against the gospel. So what is the character of those who teach error? Look at verse 10. Paul says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. Clearly, Paul is not beating around the bush here. He speaks directly and specifically without nuance or hesitancy. The first character trait of those who contradict truth is that they are rebellious. Rebellion, of course, is the unwillingness to submit under authority and to place oneself under the care of those in direction of others. It is fundamentally the spirit of anarchy. The the source of rebellion is pride, and pride results in the elevation of self above others and everything else. It makes them unwilling to heed or hear the counsel and wisdom of others. They are hard-hearted. They are stiff-necked. There are those who teach doctrinal error and elevate themselves above Scripture, and they do that by claiming that they receive direct revelation from the Lord. They don't need the Scripture because they have a personal connection. I'm, I'm above the Scripture. I don't need that. And there are others who elevate themselves above Scripture by picking and choosing what they want to focus on and what they want to ignore. Doctrinal error is rebellion against the truth, and therefore rebellion against the God of truth, no matter how appealing that person may be. The next character trait is that they are empty talkers. You see that in verse 10. That is to say they lack substance. Uh, This is a term that Paul may have coined. This is the only time it's used here in the New Testament. It's not really found in any other Greek ancient writings that I have access to, at least. It's a compound word made up of the two words vain and speech. It's speaking things that are void and empty, pointless. 
But these words are not just a waste of time as we might typically think of them. They are actually dangerous. These words are like black holes that not only lack substance, but they suck in those who hear into that emptiness, draining their mind of clear and substantive thinking. Psalm 115 verse 8 says of those who make idols, those who make them become like them. Those who make them become like them. And so it is with empty talkers and hearers. Those who speak and those who lend their ear to empty speech become as vain as the words that they speak and hear. Paul says next here in verse 10 that those who teach error are deceivers. Deceivers. There are those who deceive and they know they are deceiving. And there are those who deceive because they themselves have been deceived. Whatever the case, they are a deceiver. They are deceptive. The 19-year-olds who knock on your door trying to get you to embrace the Book of Mormon are just as deceptive as the con artist on TBN who knows he's never healed a person in his life. Self-awareness doesn't change reality. Anyone who promotes or perpetuates ideas that are contrary to the truth of God is a deceiver. Now, clearly, we need to caveat that a little bit. None of us has a corner of the truth. None of us is omniscient and knows absolutely everything with perfection. We're all learning and growing. Paul seems to reserve these these descriptions for those who specifically preach a false gospel or those who preach ideas that end up corrupting or contradicting the gospel maybe more indirectly. So individuals who teach things contrary to sound doctrine are rebellious, they're empty talkers, and deceivers. The next character trait Paul identifies is that these teachers are greedy. They are greedy. You can see that at the end of verse 11. It says, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. This was famously translated by, in the King James as filthy lucre. Like a spiritual impact, the money gets stained as it passes from giver to receiver because the motivations behind the giving and receiving are distorted and sinful. Now, Paul clearly teaches in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Timothy 5 that it is good and right for the church to support those who devote themselves to the ministry of the Word, but but a fundamental qualification for pastors is that, is that they not be lovers of money. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So it's, wrong, it's not wrong to get paid for being a pastor, but it is wrong to become a pastor to get paid. Anyone who is motivated by money will quickly compromise anything in order to increase the flow of money. In fact, if you ever want to know what's a, a key way to spot a false teacher is if money is the lever that releases spiritual blessings. It's always a joy for me when I have a counseling session with someone for the first time. Usually it's someone outside of our church that does this and they pull out their checkbook and they're expecting, okay, what's the fee? I'm like, there's no fee. The church provides well for me. It's my joy to give freely. They claim... Excuse me, a final character trait of those who teach error we can draw from this text is found in verse 16, and that is that their life betrays their profession. In a word, they are 
duplicitous. Look at verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deed. They make a profession that they know God, but their life says the exact opposite. They claim that Jesus sets us free from sin, but their life is full of sin. They claim to be concerned for the poor, but all they're interested in is getting money from the poor. They profess to be godly, but there is a train of relational destruction behind them. They profess to know God, but they are utterly unlike God in character and in action. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you hear that? If you hate someone, as you think about the relationships in your life, maybe it's someone at the office, maybe it's someone at school, maybe it's someone at home. You hate someone, and yet on the, on the other hand, you say, I love God. The Word of God says you are a liar. You cannot know God and hate others. So many are deceived about their standing before God. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Many people are easily duped by anyone who claims to be a follower or a representative of Christ. Many are naive and assume that anyone who professes to know God and speak for God must be trustworthy. But that's not true. Jesus didn't say, a few will say to me. He said, many will say to me. Here in Titus 1.10, Paul didn't say, there are a few rebellious men. He said, there are many rebellious men. We have to be on the lookout. Now, obviously, I realize that identifying error and those who speak it can be distasteful. It should be in some ways. But it is so essential that the Holy Spirit provides us here and in other passages with marks of the character of false teachers. They are rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers, greedy, and duplicitous. They are dangerous. Question number two. Question number two, what is the substance of their teaching? What, what are they dealing with there on the island of Crete? What is the substance of their teaching? Well, Paul doesn't get specific about the content of the false teaching in these churches, but he does provide some significant hints. First of all, we know that a, a primary source of the false teaching is that it is Jewish. Uh, we saw that in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, when he says that uh, many of those rebellious men are of the circumcision of the circumcision. That's a designation that Paul sometimes uses to refer to the Jews. Elsewhere, he uses it in Ephesians when he writes, therefore, remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. So the Jews who would elevate themselves, we are the ones who've been circumcised. Of course, our modern ears are like, why would you want to say that? But that's what they prized themselves in because they were law keepers. 
So Jewish converts are by and large the source of false teaching, which explains then why Paul identifies the kind of false teaching in verse 14. Look at it where he says that they are Jewish myths. It is Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Jewish myths and the commandments of men. Long before this time in history, the Jews had concocted a a whole wealth of mythology surrounding the Old Testament, what they had at the time, their, their Bible. A lot of those mythologies were stories that were invented uh, to uh, give more information about the lesser-known people in Scripture. You know, we've all read through the genealogies thinking, who are these people? You know, why, why do they matter? Well, the Jews recognize this is the Word of God. This person must have mattered. So they would invent stories and myths and create significance about those individuals. Some of the myths also were in regard to numerology, where the Jews would assign numerical value to the letters and then the words and names, and they would give significance to the, the value of those things. These myths provided no spiritual benefit. They were entirely speculative, and they only caused arguing and division. They were, as Paul said, empty talk. Now, when it comes to the commandments of men, that's a little bit more familiar to us. We know that Jesus often spoke about the practice of the Pharisees, that they claimed to be so concerned about the law of God that they they created a thick layer of laws around the law of God just to make sure they didn't violate God's law. But in so doing, they invalidated God's law in many cases. For example, in Mark 7, Jesus said, speaking to the Pharisees, For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you, Pharisees, say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, and thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down. And And he says, you do many things such as that. So the Pharisees, in pretending to care about what was good and right, would actually subvert the law of God. The law said that you should not do any work on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees came up with uh, 39 categories of what constitutes work, which included how many steps you could take in a day. Try tracking that without a Fitbit. They also discerned that if you wrote a certain number of letters, alphabetic letters, in in writing something down, that a certain amount was okay, but beyond that was too much work. This is why practicing Jews today use motion sensors in their homes to turn on lights because it's against the commandments of men to flip the light switch on the Sabbath day. But there was also pagan influence in the commandments of men, It was often those uh, who came out of pagan background that promoted the ascetic life as the godly life. We read in Colossians 1, 20-22, If you have died with Christ to the elemental principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. So the commandments and teachings of men said, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
That's what is godly. You know, there were those in some pagan religions who believed that the spirit was good, but the body was evil. And so, in order to be righteous, you couldn't enjoy physical pleasure. And again, some would come out of that, they would be saved out of that, but they would bring that way of thinking into the church. And so, they would reject and look down upon physical pleasures such as good food and intimacy in marriage. That's why Paul says in verse 15, you can see that there, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. His point there is that those who follow the commandments of men have a defiled mind and conscience. They are impure in heart, so they can't enjoy the things of God that God has blessed us with. On the other hand, those who are pure of heart, those who know God's truth and are cleansed by Christ and understand the truth, they can freely enjoy all that God has given for us to enjoy, things like good food and marriage. So the people on these, in these churches on Crete were being tossed to and fro by these various kinds of myths and commandments of men. There was just rampant confusion about how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do in this situation? Am I supposed to enjoy this? Can I not enjoy that? It was disastrous. And that leads us to our third question, what is the impact of their teaching? What is the impact of this teaching? You see, ideas have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. When someone teaches something, whether it's true or false, it has an impact. How one understands the Bible and how we look at the world will dramatically affect our outlook on life and the decisions that we make. What we believe to be true can promote healthy relationships or it can cause destruction in relationships. What we believe can promote peace and harmony in the soul or it can cause turmoil in the soul. What we believe can cultivate love among the people of God or it can cause division within the church. This is why true unity in the church is not based on agreeing to disagree. True unity in the church is based on having an increasing agreement on the truth. Paul describes that in Ephesians chapter 4. In the case of these churches, this variety of confusing teaching was wreaking havoc. Look at verse 11. These false teachers must be silenced, Paul says, because they are upsetting whole families. Upsetting whole families. This is one of those statements that we can understand the meaning of well enough, but there is a deep pit of emotional pain that lies beneath the surface. The word upsetting means to, to topple over or to ruin. It's used in John 2.15, speaking of Jesus, who went into the temple and upset or top, toppled over the tables of the money changers. Those money changers undoubtedly had their tables well organized so that they could keep careful track of the money that was coming and going. Whether they had stacked coins or whether they had bags uh, for each purpose, they had everything orderly and in its place on the table. But then Jesus comes along with zeal for his father's house and he flips these tables and sends money everywhere. Order turned into chaos. 
On Crete, whole families were moving from order to chaos. But the phrase whole families here could refer to biological family relationships, but in the original, it's, it's more of a generic phrase that means whole households, which could include slaves and workers. Either way, living in a home with other people, as we all know, is a delicate system and dynamic with many moving parts. When any part of that system, the dynamic of, of the home life, gets out of sync or gets broken in some way, there is, there is a jarring effect. I mean, it could be as simple as the water going out for a day. It changes our entire routine and what we do. But what really disrupts the system is conflict among the people in the home. When there is friction and tension, instead of a well-oiled machine where everybody's fulfilling their responsibilities and doing what they need to do and and working harmoniously and lovingly toward one another, there is a constant danger that something is going to blow up and pieces are going to fly everywhere. I hardly need, need to explain this. Almost all of us can understand what that means to one degree or another, whether it's in our home growing up or maybe our home in the past or maybe even our home today. Conflict in the home can arise for many reasons, but it is particularly difficult when theological differences are the reason for the conflict. Personal sin can be repented of and forgiven and reconciled, but when members in a family start to move apart and think differently about who God is and about life from God's perspective, it's a great challenge to keep the peace because there are implications, practical implications for what we believe. If one spouse starts to believe that eating pork is a sin, there's going to be some conflict in the home. If one spouse starts to believe that we can't do anything on a Sunday, we have to sit home, be still, we cannot work at all, that's probably going to create conflict I would say this, Christ-like character can help a person live among others with whom they disagree in a, in a way that's peaceful. But remember, these people on the island of Crete were more Cretan than Christ-like. And so the nucleus of society was splitting apart because of what was going on in the church. And when homes are split for whatever reason and in whatever way, there are devastating consequences in the lives of each individual involved. There is incalculable pain in the soul. And one of the -the down-the-line consequences that results from a, a home that is full of conflict and division is that one is less able to be effective in ministry in the church. Even those who might be the less Um, egregious party, the more innocent or more righteous party in a conflict are weakened in their ministry because their focus and attention is necessarily on the conflict. And so the more homes are beset with conflict, the less effective a church can be for the kingdom. And so given the situation that these homes and these churches were in on the island of Crete, it was a desperate need to set things right Now, for you and me, can I just say this? If there is trouble in your home, there are all kinds of reasons why it is a very good idea, why it is imperative for you to give every ounce of effort to bring healing and bring help 
to restore and reconcile those relationships. Handling trouble in the home is a way that we can glorify God and accomplish eternal purposes. But the sooner conflicts are resolved and there is peace and harmony in the home, the sooner we can redirect our attention outward and minister to those outside the home. So there was a great need because whole families were being upset and lives were being destroyed. And then finally, question number four. What is our necessary response to doctrinal error? What is our necessary response to doctrinal error? Paul gives only one instruction on how to respond to doctrinal error, and we see it in verse 13. Regarding the testimony of Cretan character, he says, This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. It's the only imperative in this passage, reprove them severely. That word reprove is actually the same word we saw in verse 9 where it's translated refute, speaking of elders' responsibility to refute those who contradict. In other words, Paul is telling Titus, and by extension all elders, to do what elders are supposed to do, to refute false teaching and to reprove those who teach it. As I mentioned when we studied verse 9, to reprove or to refute means to bring to light, to shed light on something, to expose it for the purpose of bringing conviction. In other words, elders are responsible to show error for what it really is. On its own, in the darkness of ignorance or in the darkness of naivety, doctrinal error can sound good can sound nice. But when brought under the light of God's Word and compared to the truth, it is shown to be that festering, nasty, dangerous virus that it is. And so Paul says to reprove them severely. Now, that doesn't mean to be unkind as you reprove others. It means really to treat it seriously. Don't take this lightly. Don't think that this is not a big deal. Elders are to reprove false teachers and refute false teaching, not by mocking or ridiculing them or tearing them down. Rather, they are to present the truth, explain why the error is incompatible with the truth, and then let the Holy Spirit do the work of conviction and change. And that's the goal. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 13. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Sound means to be healthy, to be vibrant, that their, their faith is strong and healthy. It, it does what it is supposed to do. It functions properly. Now, this indicates that Paul is thinking that those who are teaching error might be true believers. He's not talking about false teachers outside the church having influence on the inside. He's talking about people inside the church speaking things they shouldn't speak because they are misled themselves or for whatever reason, but they are possibly true believers. So reprove them, rebuke them so that possibly they might repent. Now, Paul is just like us. He doesn't know whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and so He gives this command to reprove in the hope that they will repent. How people respond to loving correction is really a strong indicator of their spiritual condition. 
if they are truly saved and they have the Holy Spirit, they will likely have their heart warm to the truth, their mind will be conformed, and they will begin to believe what is true and right and, rep- and repent of their error. But if they are unsaved and they don't have the Holy Spirit, they will continue in their error. So the work of elders is to protect the church from false teaching, and that tends to reveal who is a true believer and who is a false believer. So what is our response to error? It is to reprove it. It is to bring it to light. It is to pray for the repentance of those who teach it. Now, in closing, when there is trouble in home or in the church, there are two core problems that we can always identify. Theological error and ungodly character. Every time, without exception, those two things will be at the core of everything. The theological error might be one's functional theology rather than their stated theology, what is actually driving them. And there will always be some measure of ungodly character exhibited by someone, if not everyone, involved. The church needs a lot of gifts and a lot of abilities to be healthy and to function uh, for God's purposes, but that's why the Holy Spirit has distributed to every believer unique gifts so that they can contribute to the life and health and growth of the church. But to hold everything together and to address the core issues of error and ungodliness, God has appointed and gifted and equipped men, some men, to be elders in the church. Now, elders, like everyone else, can serve in a variety of ways, but there is nothing more important for elders to do than to teach sound doctrine, to refute those who contradict it, lest lives be destroyed and the church become crippled. Men, this is serious work. Elders are often on the front lines of seeing God work in hearts to bring about repentance and salvation and sanctification, and that is a great joy. But elders are also often on the front lines of seeing error and rebellion, and that is heartbreaking. Being an elder is joyful work, it's a weighty work, and it is certainly a humbling work. It is not for those who think they have what it takes. It is for those who are so compelled by God to commit themselves to labor for the sake of Christ out of love for Him and His people. May the Lord raise up more men now and in the future so that Hope Bible Church will be a place resounding with sound doctrine and engaged in the battle for the truth, for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I reflect on what we've said, my, my heart is full with so much of what isn't, hasn't been said. There's so much truth here that we could take hours studying, understanding, being convicted in, growing, maturing. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come 
into our hearts in the way that he resides perpetually but uniquely now to take truths from this passage and apply it to each one of us. Lord, as each one of us is a sinner, there is not one single exception. We are at any moment a possible source of conflict, a possible source of false teaching. We are susceptible to error. And so we are dependent on your spirit to convict us, to guard us, protect us, remind us of truth. Lord, may you raise up more men in this church to serve your body, to do this hard but joyful work. Lord, as we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, would you graciously enliven and inflame our hearts with joy as we remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. In Christ's name I pray, amen.